Would you join me in a moment of prayer? Holy God, we ask your living spirit move among us, that among these words of scripture, we might discover and be encountered by the living word, Jesus Christ, who speaks to us anew. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we're exploring the topic of love and looking in various parts of the Bible, part of what I'm trying to do this fall is to have us think broadly about the Bible. Sometimes people think uh, about God's love in just one small part, uh, and the case that I am making is it's all over the place. Uh, So today we are looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most familiar uh, pieces uh, of, uh, of, of sermonizing, and it is one where we are coming in on the back half of that Sermon on the Mount. After the, the blesseds uh, comes this passage uh, from chapter 5, beginning with verse 38. Listen for the word of the Lord as it comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus is speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your coat, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who begs from you. Do not refuse him who would borrow from you. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does the good life look like? What does the good life feel like? I think that's a human question that every society, every person has to answer. What does the good life look like? My father grew up in the days of horse and buggy when he was born. He saw the rise of the automobile. He lived through the Great Depression when he was in college. He survived some of the toughest fighting in World War II. A decade later, he had his life upended by the Great Migration, and he lived to see the moon landing. All of these things he saw over the whole scope of his life, and he never lost his great sense of humor. When someone would say something that he thought was off base. He would just laugh and say, what world are you living in? I have discovered uh, 
that that is a very helpful thing to say. In, in my study of ancient, modern, and postmodern philosophy, it's a great question. What world are you living in? Whose world are you living in? If you want to understand whose world you live in, look at the interlocking values that are there and that kind of hold together and give a self-authenticating rationale for how you should live in that world. I'd like to offer up two ways that people may tend to live in the world. and then offer some critique of those. Uh, I'll say at the front end, I think these first two ways are something of a prison. If you want to think about how some people define success, it has to do with images of strength and dominating power, control, and protecting themselves. It is as if the beatitudes of the modern society are, blessed are those who know it all. Blessed are those who are impervious to pain. Blessed are those whose chests are pumped up in pride. Blessed are those who know that winning isn't the most important thing, it's the only thing. Blessed are those who get vengeance. Blessed are those who show that might makes right. Blessed are the warriors because they're the real winners. I think that is part of how a whole bunch of people live in the world. It is a protected view. And if you look at that worldview in particular, it's dominated by a sense of fear, that fear is somehow going to threaten to take away uh, the, the, the goods they have, the life that they have. And so they seek more and more control, but control builds up more and more walls. It truly is a life without God, or if there is a mention of God, it's just about blessing all the protections. But it is really a kind of prison, is it not? Because the more walls we build up, the more we cut ourselves off from other people, the more we cut ourselves off from even seeing the humanity of other people. That's prison number one. Prison number two is something that I came to think about as I was doing the work on this sermon and and happened to see a movie, uh, The Banshees of Inishirin. Now, I have to give a a caveat here. I have learned don't talk about movies uh, without saying, I'm not recommending that you see it. Uh, there, there may be something there that, that is troubling to you. Um, I'll talk about it, but this is not a recommendation. And if you do see it and need some theological counseling afterwards, come talk with me. The Banshees of Anishirin. It's, it's a dark comedy uh, that is a metaphor put in the terms of these two men who used to be friends for years. They used to go to the pub and have pints and they would have long conversations. Um, <clears throat> but, but something has happened. Patrick, Patrick, who prides himself on being nice, terminally nice, is, is one of the men. And he just walks around being nice and, and having calm days and calm, calm. All of a sudden, one day, just stops talking to Patrick. And Patrick 
is beside himself. He says, did I say something? Did I do something? If I did, I will apologize. And Calm says, you didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. I just don't like you anymore. Patrick pushes further and pushes further, and finally Calm says, you're too dull. Your aimless chattering is wasting my life. I mean, I have a short period of life and it's dwindling away. Ten years from now, I'll die with nothing to show for it. And if I spend my time listening to you, I definitely will have nothing to show for it. I'm going to spend it making music. Padraig is this image of what the French call ennui, this existential boredom about talking about nothing, nothing seems to matter, nothing has a passion for him truly, he's not looking in the depth of life, and Colum in his, 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 his image of music has this yearning for some sort of sense of transcendence. The transcendence. And Patrick, we come to understand over time, may claim to be a nice guy, but this existential boredom is really a gangrene that is eating away at the people around him. It snips away at his friend. It snips away at his sister. There's this quiet aggression against what is real life in Patrick's niceness. Patrick's sister finally leaves the island for a job as a librarian on the mainland where it'll be more interesting. And, and she writes to her brother and says, there's nothing for you in Isherim, nothing but bleakness and grudges and loneliness and spite and the slow passing of time until death. And sure, you can have that anywhere. <laughs> what looks like niceness? This is this existential boredom, this dullness that as you come to see over the course of the movie becomes a life of wrath. And the wrath is the foundation for war. And that's what's going off in the distance that Patrick's not even paying any attention to. I wouldn't have made that connection, except in researching this sermon, I found that basic concept in the work of multiple theologians, the idea that this, this boredom ends up having people seek some sort of, 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 of meaning in life which they get through wrath, through aggression. It was an interesting connection that enemies can be created directly or enemies can be created through this, 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 this quiet wrath that seems to, to, to corrupt the world. And so we have a third way of thinking about life, where Jesus comes among the disciples with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You go through that and say, this is not being nice. This is being passionate about life. This is entering into the fullness of life in the love of God. 
And you see how this, this, the, the, all of these, these beatitudes, these blessings are about inculcating and, and, and uh, reinforcing and inspiring this life of passion. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they might just be open enough to let God surprise them and find that life happens amongst them. Blessed are those who mourn because they will truly connect with people in pain and that connection in love will transform the pain into something new. Blessed are the meek. My uh, pastor that I grew up with was in the Associated Press in Washington, D.C. for 20 years and went to seminary when he was in his 40s and he had kind of a chip on his shoulder and he went to his Greek professor and said, what's all this about blessed are the meek? And his teacher shot back, it means blessed are the teachable. (laughs) Blessed are the teachable who have that openness to God teaching them something new. Love, the love of God teaching us and, and, and encountering us and helping us to transform. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, righteousness is key in the whole of the Sermon on the Mount because it isn't just enough that I do this, you do that, we've got this contract, and therefore we always kind of meet in the middle. It's like a a teeter-totter that balances out a business transaction. In the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the righteous. It's about this overabundant righteousness that is so free that one can do things beyond their imagining. An abundant righteousness, an overabundant righteousness that is grounded in that experience of God's love. Blessed, blessed are these people who live in this new kingdom. It's a way of living, a way of truly living, of existing, not in the existential boredom, not in the ongoing always war of the world against enemies, but an engagement in, an engagement in, in creative ways with, with those around us, even our enemies. It becomes a practiced inner disposition. If the world used to be love, neighbor, hate, enemy, there is this freedom, this liberation from this prison, this this freedom to love your enemies, to truly feel that love for your enemies, to, to pray for those who persecute you. And it's not the usual chronology of love where you have to get the differences settled and work everything out and make everything right and you've got justice that then allows for love. It's a different timeline because it starts with the love. It starts with the love of God that, that just reshapes us or reshapes our imagination. Divine love, God's love, retells the story of what the good life is. Love your enemies assumes that you have enemies and that there are things that are going to happen in life, but nevertheless, God's love can change us and turn enemies into friends. My professor Ed Farley said one of the aspects of of God's love is that it gives us a sense of courage 
a sense of courage to encounter the world where we're grounded, we're founded, we're set free to embrace, to go on a journey, on an adventure. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to transpire as we begin to love enemies. It is a creative act, but in acting in these ways, something happens to us and we discover who we really are. We can abandon our true self or we can love and go find our true self. Love your enemies. Edna Vincent uh, Millay uh, had a poem, a brief one I'd share with you. Uh, Her poem says, down, down, down into the darkness of the grave. Gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the king. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. I am not resigned. In the love of God, we are not resigned to this world of imprisoning others and being imprisoned ourselves. We're not resigned because we've been loved and set free to go and, and uh, discover, take the risks to live. God's love gives us this passion for life, a passion for life in, in which we are set free not just to love the people who love us, but to love those who, even who are our enemies to get caught up in the struggles and and to find out something new about them and ourselves. It is the courage to be, the courage to love that sets us free. One time I uh, was talking with uh, a missionary uh, to Africa, Chaba. Uh, Chaba had dedicated his life to translating the Bible to this small tribe. It was gonna take him 10 years to learn the language, uh, and then he would be uh, able to begin his translation. Uh, so truly a dedicated, uh, uh, dedicated man. Um, and he taught the Bible as he's engaging people and living among them there. Um, but he came to know over the course of his time there, this man who had a field. Uh, The man had a vision for his field to plant a crop that would be a profitable crop. Uh, It would take three years for that crop uh, to to bear fruit. So he planted it and and was looking forward to it, but this other man in the village became jealous of him and wanted the land, wanted to build something on that land, and, uh, and, and, and would taunt this guy. I mean, this was a powerful man in the village. He taunted him about how he was going to take away his land, how he was going to dig up uh, his, his crop. And when it was time to harvest it, this, this other man um, grabbed his hoe and went out to tear up the crop. Um, But the original man, the original owner who planted it, he went to his shed and he got a hoe and he went out to the man who was in the field and he picked up his hoe and he began to dig up his own crop right alongside of the other man. And while he was doing it, he sang hymns. Something of the love of God evoked in him this creative 
spirit of turning enemies into friends. And the relationship, Chaba said, between the two men changed at that point. There's no formula for loving your enemy. There's no easy way to do it. It is a risk. It's a creative engagement about what you do and how you do it. And, and we're going to fail sometimes and we're going to get hurt sometimes. But, but in the love of God, we believe that something may just happen that puts us in touch with the transcendent, with, with, with what, the, 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 the music of the universe, with the, the presence of God, with the love of Jesus Christ. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Whose world are you living in? If it's Jesus' world, somehow we're set free for these creative engagements, to experiment, to try, to come together, and it may just change the world. One of the ways they talked about church in the Bible was koinonia. It meant communion. Uh, a coming together, an idealized state, people coming together and experiencing what it was like to be one in God's love. It's World Communion Sunday. I close with this, um, that passage talks about be ye perfect. Um, uh, one uh, rye writer on that said, you know, telling people to be perfect to just created a generation of neurotics. <laughs> it's better understood, be ye whole. Be ye whole as God is whole and wants wholeness for creation, communion, togetherness, love. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is human beings together fully alive in communion discovering anew more and more ways of what love looks like when people together come and experience God's presence transforming them all, transforming us all. Amen.